Welcome, everybody, to Spiritual Psychotherapy, episode 14. We're really getting up there in the numbers. Um, so we'll get to some Dao De Ching like we usually do. But before that, I want to share with you um, some stuff that I read in a paper uh, that was assigned to me in my psychiatry residency at Downstate. Um, and the paper is called Suicide Survivors. Um, a follow-up study of persons who survived jumping from the Golden Gate and San Francisco-Oakland Br Bay Bridges by David H. Rosen in San Francisco, MD. Um, so, you know, it's amazing to me the the different ways that people, Baruch Chabad, the different ways that people can experience a mystical experience. And one thing I want to start off by saying is that some of these people who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, almost all of them, actually, that they interviewed who survived, did not intend to kill themselves or were not doing it out of depression. They were doing it because a lot of them said, I knew I wasn't going to die. And it's interesting because obviously we have like the sample size of people who survived. All the people who died, I guess, you know, are not as lucky. But and I just want to read with you some of what they went through, some of their accounts of their experiences of jumping and what that was like. And I think there's a famous uh, poem or a famous, sorry, song, The View from Halfway Down, um, about somebody who regretted their decision to jump and ended up surviving, but they regretted it halfway down. Um, so here's one quote. So first of all, there's a great quote from Voltaire. After all, it is no more surprising to be born twice than it is to be born once. Right? This whole idea of we were born just now into this world, you know, however many years ago or even if you want to talk very mystically in this moment, always and always and always. It's just as amazing and unbelievable. And, you know, that's why Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel has this idea of radical amazement. It's just as idea amazing as being born again, whatever that means in Voltaire's terms. So let's see, you know, some of these born again experiences of these people and these mystical experiences. Only one survivor described the distinct sense of falling through the air rapidly. The other five... So they interviewed six people. The other five survivors lost their time orientation and said that the fall felt like a long time. And by the way, they, they, of course, it only takes three seconds. They calculated just with the physics based on the velocity uh, and the acceleration exact and the distance, exactly how much time it takes to fall from the top of the Golden Gate Bridge. It takes about three seconds. But what did they say? It felt like a long time from hours to an eternity. And that's a quote. This apparent slowing of time has also been found to be the most frequently reported phenomenon. So that occurs in 75% of people under, undergoing sudden accidental near-death experiences, falls, or near-drownings. So yes, this is among people who had near-death experiences, near-death. Um, but their experience was a time dilation. And that's very interesting because in physics, we know that you know, as you're moving more quickly, and obviously I'm not saying this is just a physical phenomenon because that wouldn't explain it feeling like hours or an eternity. Um, but we know that there's a, that idea in physics of, you know, the faster you're moving, uh, the slower time goes for you compared to somebody who's well, static. When you come to the speed of light. Right? Yes, exactly. That says you're approaching the speed of light. And of, what's of course, the, what's, the speed? what's the speed in that three seconds? Exactly. It's uh, it's not even, yeah, it's like a terminal velocity of like 80 or miles an hour or something like that, which is not, or 70. It's not not even close. I, 100%. I'm just making an analogy, but from a physical point of view, yeah. Where they go really quickly. Yeah. 
exactly absolutely right 100 percent. yeah it's true um i so now here's a quote from one of the survivors it was a good feeling no screaming it was the most pleasant feeling i've ever had i saw the horizon and the blue sky and i thought how beautiful it was this is the experience of somebody who's falling down exactly another survivor said that at first he had a peaceful feeling and then he felt like he went into a dream quote unquote i never felt like i was dying that's another quote one subject stated that he experienced a sense of relief and peace on the way down one subject said he caught a glimpse of san francisco thoughts of goodbye leaving san francisco is like leaving the world i felt like a bird flying total relief in my mind i was setting away from one realm and going to another i did not struggle i gave up i was looking forward to what was to come even now, I'm symbolically still looking for the better world. I'm still in that place between the bridge and the water. That's so powerful. He's saying, right now, I'm still in that place looking for that peace and that relief that I was finding myself headed towards. Another reported that his descent was like eternity. Beautiful. I enjoyed the sensation. Right? So one after another of these survivors are reporting that same experience of hey look this was a very peaceful and relieving experience and you know this is of course not to encourage death and i'm going to say something at the end of, or, or suicide i'm going to say something at the end that should kind of allay some of those feelings of like well i don't want to be encouraging suicide you know but not all of them most of them not so that's what i said before is that most of them were were almost sure they weren't going to die but they had this spiritual need to do it it's a very strange thing these people who decided to jump off the golden gate bridge um but they had this sense of peace and serenity and eternity so before yeah. you go further so basically they're supposedly hitting the water at 80 miles per hour. It's like hitting concrete. Right. That, so that's really what it is. So why did some survive? It's a very good question. Almost all of them had some injuries. A couple of them had no injuries. Believe it or not, they jumped feet first. And it's somehow the, the way that their feet hit the water was totally, you know, well, in a way it, that it pierced it. Sharp enough. Yeah, pierce. exactly. So the somehow, the, yeah, but it's a good question. I guess. Hey, Junior didn't have that luck. That's right. <laughs> It's crazy. So now in the next quote, when I hit the water, I felt a vacuum feeling and a compression like my energy uh, displaced the surface energy of the water. At first, everything was black, then gray brown, then light. It opened my mind like waking up. It was very restful. You hear this, the language here, right? Is so much like mystical experiences that we've heard from ancient, ancient traditions. When I came up above the water, I realized I was alive. I felt reborn. I was treading water and singing. I was happy and it was a joyous occasion. It affirmed my belief that there is a higher spiritual world. I experienced the transcendence. In that moment, I was refilled with new hope and purpose of being alive. So, how deep is the water at the Golden Gate? That's a good question. It's deep enough where they wouldn't well, hit so the bottom. Would, yeah. would the person experience hypoxia? Uh, you could drown. There was one well, person. Drowning, but hypoxia is so that. They didn't get enough oxygen to the brain, so they were delusional. The only way to, to have experienced hypoxia is enough time right. that so it takes about three minutes. So they could have been under the water. Completely. No, so this, this these people came up quicker than that. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, not immediately, but it took less than a minute. Um, 
The, this person's description of spiritual rebirth and transcendence was experienced in varying degrees by all the survivors. All right, so that means that all six of the people that, that spoke to the researchers experienced this type of mystical experience. Another last final quote, I was refilled with a new hope and purpose in being alive. It's beyond most people's comprehension. I appreciate the miracle of life, like watching a bird fly. Everything is more meaningful when you come close to losing it. I experienced a feeling of unity with all things and the oneness with all people. After my psychic rebirth, I also feel for everyone's pain. Surviving reconfirmed my belief and purpose in my life. Everything was clear and bright. I became aware of my relationship with my creator. Unbelievable. It really does. And you just took the words out of my mouth because my next point was exactly about psychedelics. Now, why did you say that? It's amazing that you, that you said that because I guess because of the, the mystical elements and the, the experiences of time changing and the rebirth feeling, um, this feeling of surviving something. Good. Yeah, because, because now what's the point here? The point that, that's underlying what you're saying is that involved in high doses of psychedelics inevitably is what is termed by the, the Reddit community as ego death. What's ego death? Ego death is the psychological experience of dying, despite you not actually dying. You know, in, in the experience of a psychedelic, you take a high enough dose, you feel that you die. And the experience, and, and amazingly, all the research that's being done on psychedelics is showing that the benefits that we know of only really happen when you have a complete mystical experience. So only once you experience the loss of self or the death of self, and then the rebirth of the self into this world, only then do you really get the full effects of the psychedelic for the antidepressant treatment. Let's say you have PTSD addiction, you name it, whatever the, the disorder is, the effects are really only proven to be there if you have a complete mystical experience. Now, why am I so, you know, trying to make this point right after discussing this Golden Gate Bridge stuff? Because I don't think we should ever encourage literal suicide. But I'm, as a psychiatrist, I, encourage, I encounter so many patients who are looking at me and saying, Doc, I have no reason to live. They recount to me all their trauma, and you wouldn't believe the things that I've heard in terms of abuse, sexual and physical from a very young age, drug addiction, levels of depression that we should never even dream of in our worst nightmares. But this is what people go through, and it's absolutely heart-wrenching. And I've heard people sob, like I still hear, they say you're not supposed to bring your work home with you, but I can't help it. Some, I can still hear the way that this woman was sobbing from the, the garbage that she's been through in her life. And all of the above were things that she experienced. And somebody comes up to you and they say, for, you know, Alan Watts talks about this. He's like, all right, let's, let's say somebody comes up to you. They say, you know, I just, I need to kill myself. And part of the, the leeway that you might want to give to somebody and I'm not saying to actually do this in practice, but in a thought experiment, kind of a way you can say, you're free to do as you please. But what I will tell you is, there's you don't actually have to fully commit suicide and kill yourself 
physically. Instead, you can do what he calls partial suicide, or what I would call ego death suicide, where by taking a high enough dose of a psychedelic, you experience what is this like to die and then come back into this world. And that experience of coming back into this world is just as beneficial as being reborn in any other sense. And, you know, it's so hard to, to really formulate this into words, but but I, I think that's the key for, for people is to realize, like the one of these survivors said, based on realizing what, how, you know, how easy everything is to lose, I now have a much greater appreciation of it. I always love quoting Wayne Dyer, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So what you might think is a horrible set of circumstances worthy of suicide, if you take a high enough dose of a psychedelic and you come back into this world, those circumstances might very well be the exact same. You might still be poor. You might still have a terrible job. You might still you know, be all alone or whatever it is. But your perspective somehow changes on life. And you can be filled with this spiritual feeling of connectedness and not being, you know, looking at it as, oh, I need to amass X amount of wealth or X amount of, you know, uh, property or whatever it is. And instead, see yourself as a divine vessel or instead see yourself in terms of your interconnectedness with all beings and everything in this reality. I, I approach it totally differently, but I, mm -hmm. I see, I mean, normally we get people who are depressed and yeah. even sometimes suicidal. So I approach it, well, first of all, it was a time in their lives before something occurred in which they wanted to commit suicide. So at that prior time, what were your aspirations? Mm. What did you, Beautiful. Where, where was the source of your pleasure, your enjoyment? So we touch on that. We discuss that. Mm. And so the only problem is they can't achieve that any further because they have a serious issue. And so I said, look, why don't we, one, resolve your serious issue, and then you could resume those things that gave you pleasure. Mm. And that's basically where we, where we actually go. Now, of course, if somebody just comes in an evolutionary state saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I was fine, but I realize I'm not doing as well as my next door neighbor. Mm to, you know, I've been fine being poor. Yeah. And then suddenly I realize I need wealth. And I'm just, you know, instead of the concept, Ezehu Ashir, yeah. mm -hmm. they have this uh, need for something that never existed before. So it's not like there's something that's oppressing them. Yes. But rather this is manufactured in their own mind based upon a a, a, a deviation from their normal perspective. Beautiful. So that's so, exactly the word that I was going to say is it's all about perspective. Right. Well, but but so you do, you can resolve. You can it. reframe it without telling them go right ahead. Right. Instead, and, and, and yes. Get them to, because every child, even when you were a child, you had things that gave you pleasure. Great. There's so no well, that's, I love what you're saying. One point I will say also that I, that I picked up on here and what I thought was so interesting is one of these survivors described, if you remember, this feeling of being like he was in a dream. Let me see the exact word here. He says, another survivor said that at first he had a peaceful feeling and then he felt like he went into a dream. I never felt like I was dying. And this idea of the dream element of this 
you know, I had a, I had a dream recently. So first of all, a little back background to this. Don't, don't tell too many people. I know this is being recorded, but this is a funny thing. I've tried certain supplements and some of the supplements, they're all legal. They're over the counter. One of them is called Huprazine A. It's, it's a great supplement. It helps, you know, if you take it very sparingly, it helps increase REM sleep by about 20%. I've taken it too much because I didn't know how sparingly I really should have taken it. And it called Huperzine A. It's an experimental drug for, for Alzheimer's. Over the counter, you got it on I got it on Amazon. But basically, it increases your REM sleep by 20%. You don't, you don't. You don't no problem. You're right. But so the bottom line is I've I've taken it, and it's amazing because you feel more well rested in the morning from that little bit of extra REM that you got, or a lot of bit of extra REM. It actually was experimented with in terms of lucid dreaming. So I've had my fair share of lucid dreaming over the past however many months and uh, quite a bit of it. And, uh, you know, just that experience of what that's like is pretty unbelievable. So my most recent one, I was looking at my friend right in the eye mm -hmm. and I told him and while I was lucid dreaming, I said, life is a lucid dream. And he looks at me and he repeats it back to me. He says, life is a lucid dream. And then all of a sudden, the whole mosaic of the universe kind of came into view. And I kind of saw these beautiful like orbs and lights. And I can't even describe it so well to you. But I had the distinct feeling that this was kind of a pathway towards some kind of truth. This idea of life being a lucid dream. Um, the funny part is that while you're dreaming, the, the question becomes, who is the one doing the dream? And we can talk all about that. And I've discussed it many times. God is the dreamer. He's the dreamt. He's that which is, uh, you know, the characters of the dream. He's He's the knower, the knowledge, and the knower. And, and, the, and the, that which is known. So when you kind of experience the world this way as a sort of dreamlike experience, it allows you to put yourself in a more a lightness i guess of of a, of a of a headspace so i think that's that's a beautiful way of, of viewing the world as us being a dream in the mind of god i've spoken many times about that i just wanted to mention that one more time and here's a point that i wanted to make the reason i bring this up is because i, I heard a great podcast from andrew huberman md or sorry maybe he's a phd from uh i believe it's stanford he works in the same college as Carol Dweck, who wrote a great book about, you know, uh, having a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. And he talks about sleep, the benefits of different parts of sleep, the beginning of sleep being more deep wave and the benefits of that, the point of that. And then towards the end of sleep, you have more REM sleep, more and more REM cycles. And REM sleep is actually a type of therapy for your brain. In what sense? Well, in a way, you're reliving the day's events. But... As you're reliving them, you're not getting that spike in norepinephrine. You're not getting that adrenaline rush that causes that fear and that anxiety that you usually get. Or pleasure. Or I mean, pleasure. Come on. Pleasure. You, know, you know, you are getting the pleasure, but you're not getting that level of norepinephrine. Even if you do have a nightmare, the level of terror that you're experiencing during REM sleep is not even close to the level of terror that you experience during your waking hours. In that sense, it's trying to deprogram your brain from some of that trauma or the difficult experiences that you had during the day. And that's why if you get a lack of REM sleep and a lack of dreaming, you're almost inevitably going to be irritable that day, catastrophic thinking. So just know that part of this life being a lucid dream and part of all this stuff is very physical. That's the lesson that I take from this. If you get good sleep, 
if you get good nutrition, if you exercise, you can control to some degree. It's not fully under your control. It's hard to always, you know, get the right amount of sleep, you know, make the time to exercise. I understand the practical difficulty sometimes, but do your best and understand this lesson that there are very, you know, practical things that influence this lucid dream of life from a very reductionistic point of view. That's not to say that there aren't also higher emergent spiritual things that influence it as well. So that's it for the Golden Gate stuff and the dream stuff. I want to pivot a little bit to so, well, a little bit of the Dao Te Ching and then, and then we'll do some Zohar. Yeah. Prescribed psychedelic. So it's not legal yet, but when it does become legalized, which seems that that's the path that it's on because they're still doing the clinical trials, somebody with really resistant depression, somebody with suicidality, somebody like ketamine already is approved for acute suicidality. There's a ketamine clinic where I work. Ketamine is very psychedelic in its properties, even though it's more of an anesthetic. Yeah. And it's a dissociative, but it still causes people to K-hole and have these experiences. No, ketamine is, but but uh, but things like mushrooms and LSD and yeah. MDMA, which is ecstasy, are still yet to be approved. But they're a few years away, it seems. But this is a conversation we could we could talk about more afterwards. But it's a fantastic question. Um, yes, sure. Yeah. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There is no way to describe it. One can only describe them vaguely by their appearance. Right, so these ancient people are, you know, touching on something that's very ethereal in a way. Watchful like men crossing a winter stream, alert like men aware of danger. Simple as uncarved wood, hollow like caves, yielding like ice about to melt. Amorphous like muddy water. So these are people who are kind of rolling with the punches. There's what Alan Watts calls prickly people and wiggly people. The prickly people are very fixed in their mindset. They're very... This way or, or the highway, they're very much like, you know, reality is particles versus the people who say reality is waves. Those are the more wiggly people. They're more square in their thinking, very conservative, maybe. People who are more wiggly are people who are able to roll with the punches of life. And that's what a hacham is. That's what a, a, a sage or an ancient master is like, is a person who can kind of uh, be like the bamboo that when the wind comes, instead of cracking because it's so rigid, instead it bends with the wind and doesn't break. Well, that's what all plants do. It's not just bamboo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just giving an analogy, but that's a good, it's a good point. Um, but bottom line, these are people who are able to adapt themselves. Like tree, yeah. 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 It doesn't move. The top, like even the top the branches bend, but not the... Not yeah, the, the stalk, the, the trunk itself. But either way, the, the, the point is well taken. Exactly. The whole thing from top to bottom. Bottom line, it's it's about adaptability. 
don't know if you ever see, gone to Aruba and see mm -hmm. that they they have this plant and the wind blows it so it grows this way. Oh, uh, interesting. And yeah, you, you look, I don't remember what it's called, but it's Aruba. You can look at it. It's Very really cool. Interesting. So it does bend and and has basically grown that way. Amazing. Over the uh, one day I'll see it. Very cool. So one hundred percent. Um, so now here the next part, but the muddiest water clears as it is stilled, and out of that stillness, life arises. So I always talk about this: the idea that when you when your mind is like muddy waters, when your mind is very kind of mixed up, and a lot of thoughts are going on in your mind, what can you do to calm that those muddy waters? Well, the point is not more thoughts. The point is not more thinking and you know more activity per se. It's actually about just being still and allowing the mind to relax itself and allowing the mud to settle to the bottom, allowing those stormy waters to calm themselves just by being silent. He who keeps the Tao does not want to be full, but precisely because he is never full, he can remain like a hidden sprout and does not rush to early ripening. So a person like this is not seeking out fullness. It's because he is forever content with his lack of fullness, with the vicissitudes of life, with the, the feeling of pain. But suffering is different than pain, right? Because suffering is, I'm in pain and I need to change it. But just pain, anybody could experience pain. Pain but, being physical and yeah, suffering being emotional. Exactly. Suffering being the reaction to the pain. It's like what they call the second bullet. But precisely because he's never full, he can remain like a hidden sprout and does not rush to early ripening. Meaning he's always in a way with that growth mindset, but not obsessed with growing. He's just naturally growing and naturally continuing with the, with the way that the world is progressing. Because I, I would think that people as they grow, as their problems become more serious, yeah. they would learn to adapt. Yes. Like, the way I do it is I compartmentalize. I can have thousands of cases in my mind. I'm talking about charity cases, mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. example. And each one is in a little compartment. Yeah. And so instead of having everything fall to the bottom and basically become one big pool of mud mm -hmm. at the bottom, so I have clear waters, I basically, everything is in a little box. Yes. And I'm able to call it up, if you will, and access it. Beautiful. And otherwise, basically, I'm at peace. So if I'm if I'm choosing basically to put something away, that's how I deal with Amazing. it. Amazing. Whatever coping mechanism allows you to let the mud settle is beautiful. I think that's great. Next part, become totally empty. Let your heart be at peace. Amidst the rush of worldly comings and goings, observe how endings become beginnings. All right. So don't get stuck on the snapshots of life that you're seeing just watch how endings become beginnings things life. flourish each by each only to return to the source to what is and to and what is to be to return to the root is to find peace to find peace is to fulfill one's destiny to fulfill one's destiny is to be constant to know the constant is called insight not knowing this cycle leads to eternal disaster Right, so if you're not aware that this is the natural flow of life and death, there's an eternal disaster because everything is always leading towards its dissolution. Everything is always leading towards 
it not being there anymore. Everything, it seems, is inevitably always leading towards death. And you say to yourself, what do I do? How do I escape this tragedy? And the answer is to stop seeing death as finite, to stop seeing things as separate events, as separate objects. Instead, to see them as flowing one into the other. And the way to do that is by being so present now that you're able to, to sense it. Well, I, I, I yeah. inject adversity into my life. Yes. Charity, as we say. Baruch Abada ID. Yes. Hi, yeah. Mikey. How are you, ID? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, good to see you. Great to see you, honey. Sorry, I just got home. No problem. We're about to start the Zohar in a minute, so you're perfect timing. Um, but yeah, I think I think your your coping mechanisms are so no, right. great. But, but I'm saying, in other words, basically, I'm choosing. I could just be at peace. Mm-hmm. I could just do nothing challenging or no. So what? Object, I, when, uh, let me let me stop you there because peace doesn't have to mean not taking on a challenge. It means while you're doing the challenging thing, challenge yourself to also be at peace. That's exactly. Otherwise, so that's Darren greatly. If you can't, then you're going to end up with PTSD. hundred percent. Because you you can't just be having that adrenaline mm-hmm. constantly flow. And I have have a case right now. Yeah. In Massachusetts. This woman, she's at odds with her family, mm. and and there are psychiatrists involved as well because basically it's about greed. Mm. The father what has a lot of money available to him relative to the son who has zero money and he's not happy he has no money. it's it's very Whereas tough his yeah. sister his sister you know has sufficient money so basically he came up with this ingenious idea mm-hmm. he's going to take out the father in the sense that he's going to have him declared incompetent he wanted to be put over yeah. the father's assets mm-hmm. so that he could pay himself yeah, so I don't want to get too far into the details but bottom line your but point but yeah. his sister is go, is is basically Dealing with this 24-7. Got her whole it. life has been taken over by this. Yeah. And she has no rest. Exactly. So maybe that you can be the source of that piece. Beautiful. So one thing, one point I wanted to make here is the constancy. What's the what's the importance of constancy? That it says here to fulfill one's destiny is to be constant, to know the constant is called insight. What does that mean? That means that within the cycle of birth and death and everything being temporary and transient, there's something there. That's constant. This awareness, this consciousness is always there. And it's always conscious. And it's always unchanging and unmoved. And you can tap into it best when you're just silent and at peace. And that's the point. Is within this game of life and all of its comings and goings, can you see that which is not coming and not going? Knowing the constant gives perspective. This perspective is impartial. Impartiality is the highest nobility. The highest nobility is divine. Being divine, you will be at one with the Tao. Being at one with the Tao is eternal. This way is everlasting, not endangered by physical death. Right? So that's unbelievable. That's the point that's ineffable. It cannot be spoken, but somehow it's described as those who've tasted it as being everlasting and beyond death. It's beyond life and death. But the point is, it's in a way even more than life because there's it's it's like this life without death. So very esoteric and very interesting. Now I want to continue with with the Zohar. So um, just in time for ID, we're going to talk about a little bit more of the alphabet soup that we've been uh, talking about. 
right? So last time we talked about the letters that were going up to God and they said, we want to start the Torah. We want to be the first letter of the Torah. And for some reason or another, God is rejecting each one. Um, so let's see. The next letter that we're up to is Sadi. And I remember Bela last time said that she, it's funny because she thought that the, the letter Sadi was like Sadiq. Well, let's see right now. What is Sad, Sadi's argument to God? The letter Sadi entered. She said to him, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me. For Sadiqim, the righteous, are sealed by me. And you who are called Sadiq, righteous, are signified by me. As it is written, for Yodke Vavke is Sadiq, loving righteousness, as it says in Tehilim. It is fitting to create the world by me. So this letter Sadi says, I'm Sadiq. I represent righteousness. But I also represent you, God, because you are denoted as Sadiq in Tehillim. Um, so as the righteous one. He replied, Sadi, you are Sadiq, but you should remain hidden, not so revealed. Wow. So this is the first one that God doesn't say, oh, you also represent some kind of treachery. He's going to say to Sadi, and we're going to see more about this. You're so amazing in a way that we can't even reveal this to the layman because it's not going to go over well. It's not, you know, the, the thing with esotericism is that unless you're, it's kind of a self, you know, working system where unless you're at that level to understand it, you're not going to understand it. And when you are at that level, you do understand it. And, and that's natural because that's almost like the divine will for you to understand it when you're at that level. So if we were to reveal the Torah being starting off with Sadi, it would be way too explicit and it wouldn't allow people to get to that level where they earn, in a sense, that righteousness or that level of understanding. Because, you know, beware of wisdom you have not earned, says Carl Jung. You need to get to that level because it'll only help you if you're ready for it. So what is this tremendous wisdom? So he says, so as not to provide the world a pretext. I don't want to give the world some kind of pretext by or some kind of, you know, false understanding of the world by revealing you with the first letter of the Torah. How so? She is Nun, right? So Yod from the name of the Holy One Covenant, the Holy Covenant comes and rides on her, right? So if you look at the construction of the letter Sadi in our current Hebrew script in Kitav Ashuri, Right, an Assyrian Hebrew script, which is the script we use today. The Sadi is made of the letter Nun with the Yod riding on top of her. Right, so rides on her and is united with her. This is the mystery. When the blessed Holy One created Adam, he created him with two faces. Right, so this is really interesting because now Sadi is going to have a Nun with a Yod on one side and a Yod on the other side. So, and now they're comparing this to the creation of Adam, and we'll see what happens. So the Yod faces backward like this, right? So the way that the Sadi is, is constructed is you have a Nun, and then on one side of the Nun, there's a Yod facing one way, and the other side of the Nun, there's a Yod facing the other way. They were not turned face to face like this, right? So Sadi doesn't have two Yods looking at each other. It looked upward like this. Right, so so now, in in response to hearing this, the the sadi the yod on the noon 
started looking upwards, and then it looked downward like this, all right? It's trying to find its pair. The yod on one side is trying to look at the yod on the other side. It's like a little thought experiment here. And we'll, we'll unpack all this in a second. The blessed Holy One said to her, turn back for I intend to split you and transfigure you face to face, but you will arise elsewhere. She left his presence and departed. All right, so this is really unbelievable stuff. Let's see what it means. Mikey, I have a question. Yes, I do. So I, I, it's sort of related to this in the sense that I, I, I have, I have like, uh, what's the word? Um, if 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 these hidden people, or it says to you know to be hidden, then I understand it probably it's relating to being humble or whatever. But if someone's hidden, like these hidden Sadiqim or whatever, how could you find them if they're hidden? Ah, <laughs> uh, so that's the best question. So the first, my knee-jerk response is like this. When we talk about the Tao in the first half of the class, the reason I love it so much is because it expresses uh, an understanding of God that's you know, not so easy to understand from the traditional way we're taught about God. So what, right. what am I talking about? So they talk about the Tao and they say the Tao is like the king who abdicated his throne. The Tao is basically so hard to find. Whenever you're looking for it, it's always just out of reach. It's always right. hiding from you. Right. And they say the Tao is like water because it sinks to the lowest place. And the famous line that I quote almost every week is the Tao flows through all things, right? It lo loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. So the thing about hidden wisdom and hiddenness is that God is hidden. This experience of the Tao or of God, this humility of God that we always talk about, because we, we right. always talk about the, the greatness of God and the humility of God in one breath. And in order to talk about the greatness of God, you also have to concurrently talk about the right. humility of God. Right. Because right. that's the point, is to discover right. the greatness, you right. need to, to find the humility first. And once ah, right. that's the point is that God's greatness will only reveal itself through the path of humility. It seems to me from my, from my not so humble perspective, but the point being that when you allow yourself to be lowly like water, to still your mind, to be non-judgmental, and to be totally, let's say you go out into the, into the mountains and you hike for three days alone. And you feel tiny, or you look up at an, a, a, the astronomy of the universe, and you're just wowed, and, and you marvel at your smallness. Right. It's from that point of humility that you can start to get a glimpse of the greatness of this hidden stuff. Right. But, so when it comes to the hidden sadikim, I would say it's the same point. That the whole point is that they're hidden, because they wouldn't. Right. How do you, how do you like you're in front of one? Yeah. If you're a fun one, would you have an epiphany that he's the guy? Maybe on some level, but maybe it would take you a lifetime to figure it out. You never know. <laughs> That's the funny thing. No, I, I, told, I told you once before the story about the, when I learned about the 36. Yes, and, with RN. Right, I'm RN. And I told him, Rabbi, if they're hidden, I could be the guy. So <laughs> That's right. Idea, if they bump it to 72, you're still out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you're one of them. Don't worry. I still believe. <laughs> It's amazing. No, but I'm saying like you want to. I want to meet one of these. Give me one of the thirty-six. Yeah. But now, theoretically, if you met him, would you know it? Mm. I I don't know, but I I have a feeling 
that from this way of thinking, you get the vibe. You get the vibe. Not only that, I would say it's like you know, like we say, that you can see the meaning of something. You, you see, God says you can see my back, but you cannot see my front. Right? right? Yeah, the meaning of that being very traditionally interpreted as you can look back at what happened and everything becomes understandable. But looking right. forward, you don't understand it. So maybe in the moment yeah. you might not understand, but you ha- maybe having met them, right. you say, "Oh, yeah, he was one of the thirty-six in my life." Well, right. So I, I could say in my life, and thank God I've met a lot of towering people in the, Jew- in the Jewish world. But a person that had that that mystical, angelic, yeah, really could be one of, was may rest in peace, Rabbi Schneerson. Wow, a hundred percent. Yeah. I never saw a human being with that skin, those eyes, and that, <laughs> that movement in my life. It's unbelievable what he did. Yes. Yeah. He was, 100%. Yeah. yeah. What I was going to say, first of all, with regards to that, I mean, if you took a, one of the 36 and you actually opened him up to the world and identified him as such, he would be bombarded by the entire world. I mean, exactly. you know, we've seen this happen throughout generations. People pretend mm-hmm. to be, pretend to be someone who's going through Heal them. Mm-hmm. And, he was you know, everybody's there. <laughs> everybody. Funny. And yeah, he's right. He would surrender the title. He would surrender exactly. the and they would not be able to be who they are. Absolutely. Form and distorted into basically just an object. Exactly. It would be everybody. abused 100 percent 100 percent Absolutely. But, but on the other hand, going back to the original point, the reason it shouldn't start off with exciting is because the world started off in its most elementary elementary mm-hmm. and basic form. You build up to being excited. Mm. So that, that's why Bereshit has to start with, not exciting. But a bit. But, but something that, you know, signifies a beginning for, from, from nothing. Yes, so great point. I want to see now exactly what, the, because I think you're hitting on something amazing. What is exactly the point that's going to be made here? So first of all, this noon, the letter Sadi consists of a noon and a yod, we know. So now the interesting part is, what is noon? Noon is the Shekhinah. It's Nekeva. Nekeva means feminine. And noon starts that word, Nekeva. So the noon is Shekhinah. It's that the lowest of the ten sefirot. It's that feminine one. And the, uh, the yod, which is riding on top of it, symbolizes yesod, because it starts with the letter yod, the divine phallus. Right, which is copulating with the Shekhinah to create this whole world, who is called covenant. Right, Yesod is also known as covenant. The mark of the covenant of circumcision is pictured as the smallest of the Hebrew letters, um, and this mark is identified with the Yod. And the name Shaddai might also be related, and also here Yod Kevavke. But the point being, right, why is it important that Yod Kevavke and Shaddai? Because um, it's the name of the holy covenant. Right, that's why uh, Yod. So, but bottom line. Whether Yod is Yesod or Covenant or Yod Kevavke, it's involved with Shekhinah in a very intimate way to create the world. And the point being, there's something so amazing going on here between masculine and feminine, between yin and yang, that, yes, this is true. The world was created with the Nun and the Yod and the Sadi. Is, this is what it's all about. It's about this interplay. Now. Why couldn't the Torah tell me this from the very beginning in this thought experiment, in this philosophical thought experiment? Why can't the Torah tell me from the very beginning, hey, look, there's this dualistic plane that you're living on right now. 
the mono the, the 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 non-dual plane where everything is one where it's all god that's in a way prior to not temporarily not in time but in some other philosophical sense it's prior to and then here on this world the beginning of creation is from the sadi it's from this interplay of yin and yang of zakhar and nekevav the yod and the nun why couldn't the torah tell me this part of my feeling is this is so subversive to a person that it becomes incomprehensible unless you're at that mystical level. Now, what am I talking about? Yin and yang is not just masculine and feminine. What else is it? It's also good and evil. It's also the dichotomy between Rabbi Schneerson and Adolf Hitler. Wow. And what's now, what am I trying to say here? What I'm trying to say here is that, you know, and, and I'm not going to do justice with my words, but in a way, the question arises, right? When I always come back to this thing, how could there be evil in the world? And this, right. I know we're going to give a million answers and I'm, I don't want to get into them. But part of the mystical head is God is infinity. God is everything. God is the yin and the yang. God is the good and the evil. What did I just say? How could I say God is the good and the evil? Right. It says in Yeshayahu, We change it in the tefillah. I always quote this pasuk. But Hashem says, I create the light and the darkness, the good and the evil. But this is so subversive and so, you know, undermining of everything that it means to be a human being in a way. Because if you fully buy into this from day one, it might lead you astray. This is the big fear. The big fear is if we tell this to people and they misunderstand it, they might go and do crazy things because they'll say, well, God is the good and the evil. What does it matter if I do evil things? The point is the system is built as such that once you get to a high enough spiritual level, to understand the deepest truth of how this evil and good interplay works and somehow that God is included in the good and the evil, that you will naturally not want to go do evil. Because you're at that level where despite knowing that God is also a rascal, that God is both the Yitzhak HaTov and the Yitzhak Hara, somehow, the good, the evil inclination and the good inclination, you're naturally going to want to still do good because that's the game that we play. We don't play the evil game when we're at a high spiritual level. We play the evil game when we're lost in the game. And that, to me, is all hidden here. I think this is incredible because that's why the Torah couldn't start with Sadi. Because it would have given away the secret way too easily. If it started with Sadi, I would have known all this stuff between Zachar and Nekeva. I would have known all this stuff between good and evil, playing with each other that it would be way too much information, way too much wisdom before I earned it. It would be way too much wisdom before I was able to, you know, get to that level where I was able to say, you know something, I understand that God is infinite and God somehow includes evil, but that doesn't mean that I should go and do evil. And, you know, that, that's the way that a lot of people justify their evil actions is, I can do no wrong. From one sense, it's true. Because the only thing that can happen is the will of God. So that's it. But you end up with what? You end up with 
Uh, what did he do? He started, he created this idea of of a sin for the sake of heaven. And you could start thinking like him if you think too mystically, or not too mystically, but in a, in a certain perspective in the mystical sense. Because then you say to yourself, okay, if everything is part of this divine plan, so is Averot. Let me go do these Averot Lashem Shamayim. You could see how he got there. And that's kind of what would happen to more people, in my opinion, if, quote-unquote, the Torah started with Sadi in a philosophical sense, if you gave away this game. But the funny part is the way that, that I've heard it explained is that, you know, once you become enlightened or once you have that experience of the non-dual or ego death, it's like this, where, you know, at the end of a play, when the hero comes out and he takes a bow and everybody claps, right? And then who comes out? The villain comes out and he takes a bow and everybody claps. That's unbelievable. Well, they're actors. They're actors, and that's the point. That's is that getting basically uh, applauded yes. for being good actors portraying the role? Exactly. But, they did such a good job of of hoodwinking you into into buying into this game of the world that you got lost and thought, "Oh, hey, look, good and evil are really in this crazy tension," and you you got so lost in this game, and then. There's this tremendous sense of relief and laughter and saying, wow, I can't believe all along God was playing the part of the evil guy and the good guy. Now, don't misunderstand me here because I don't want you to think, oh, now I can go do evil. The point is the game has to be this way. There is no other way for the game to be of other than we, we naturally are rooting for the good. We're naturally rooting for pleasure over pain. You can't root for it any other way. It's just yeah, impossible. There are people who do. Yes, but in a, in a certain sense, they're getting some degree of pleasure from well, that no. pain. How many people, the concept is called rubbernecking. You know what rubbernecking is? I think so. It's What is it exactly? It's Rubbernecking is where your neck is stretched. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Theoretically, but it's not. Rubbernecking is where people are driving along and they see an accident. Oh, they yes. It's horrible and they slow down to yeah, yeah, yeah. take it all in. Wow. To enjoy it in some respects. Mm -hmm. And so basically we say, well, the necks are just they're just hanging back so they can mm. see all the gruesome details. So, so my point is, on a certain sense, your dopaminergic system in your brain doesn't allow you to have a motivation for anything other than what, what gives you a, a release of dopamine. Some people have a weird thing where they get a release of dopamine from pain. And that's, you know, you go to talk about uh, BDSM. Boxing matches, wrestling matches. Yeah, but that's also what I'm trying to say is not that that you can't get pleasure from pain. I'm saying whatever gives you pleasure, you're always going to have to lean towards that. Whatever it is, that's kind of the way your brain is wired. But my point is that when you hear this information, that this is the way that the world works as, and that there is there is good and evil and, and in a way they're both in this tension, it doesn't mean that, oh, hey, now, because I know this, really, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be fully accepting of evil and not try to change it. That's not the point I'm trying to, but let's let's continue reading because it gets even more interesting. Now, Dupartsufin is what we were saying before, two faces, right? So when God created Adam, he created him Dupartsufin with two faces. So if you look in Bereshit Rabbah, the Midrash Rabbah Yirmiyah, son of El-Azhar said, when the blessed Holy One created Adam, he created him androgynous, right? He had both masculine and feminine parts, right? Uh, genitalia. 
Right. It said male and female, he created them. Right? Zacharun kebab bera'am. Rabbi Shimuel, son of Nachman, he said, when the blessed Holy One created Adam, he created him with two faces. Then he sawed, sawed him, right? He cut him in half and gave him two backs, one on this side and one on that. Right? So, and that's how we have Adam and Hava, is, is from the splitting of this originally androgynous being. To me, this is an expression of the same point that we're making. This good and evil part of man, or lehavdil, I'm not saying men are evil or women are evil, but lehavdil, the splitting of yin and yang, of masculine and feminine, the point is, the, these mystical teachings are trying to tell you they were originally one. And that's one of the most difficult things to understand. And I think that's the point is you, you, you can't understand with the rational faculty, but you can understand it somehow intuitively, experientially, when you're going through a mystical experience of how it could be that God is both yin and yang. Now, what's happening with this sadi? We were saying this whole thing about it. Originally, uh, when God you know, made this sadi, the, the yods face backwards. And that's the way you know it's written. And the Sephardic practice of writing the sadi makes the yods facing outwards, not towards each other. Um, but it says here, initially, the union between the masculine and feminine aspects of God was back to back and thus incomplete. Right. So now the way that the Zohar is trying to explain it is, but wait a second. Yes, everything was one, but there's almost like a storyline to it now because he created the Yods facing outwards. And therefore, they're not copulating. They're not masculine and feminine being together. They're apart from each other. They're not in a love relationship. They're not in this, this flowing state. This incomplete union is symbolized by the configuration of Sadi. The Sadi must remain hidden so that this secret will not become widely known and provide the world a pretext to impugn the divine union. Right? So the Sadi represents, yes, that there's a noon and a Yod and they're supposed to be in relationship, but also this idea that the two Yods are facing away from each other. And the two Yods also symbolize masculine and feminine. They also symbolize the yin and the yang. But them not facing each other can also be something that's totally inconceivable for people. It could be a, a pretext for people to badmouth the divine union. In what sense? They'll say, hey, look, God created the world imperfectly, where there's not this loving relationship between the yin and the yang. And it might lead them towards the opposite extreme, right? So one extreme is, hey, look, yin and yang are in perfect union all the time. The other extreme is, yin is totally fundamentally different than yang, and they can never ah. match. And then you become dualistic. So there's, they're both very dangerous. So this is a very important point. On one hand, you can go too extreme to one side, and that's dualism. On the other hand, you can go too extreme to the other side, and that's everything is one, and therefore evil is good. Wow. The way you're talking in craziness, because now the question is, uh, this is the, the philosophical question of evil, is either I have to say there's a God and there's a devil. That's right. the extreme of the Yods facing outwards. Right. If I would start the Torah with a Sadi, then people would see, hey, look, the Yods are facing outwards. It must be, mean dualism. That's one conclusion you can make. Or they could look at the Sadi and say, hey, look, there's the masculine and feminine, and they're right. kind of games with each other. They knew all right. along, the yin and the yang, the good and the evil knew all along right. what was happening. And therefore, let me go and, you know, do evil or, or 
So we don't want to end up with either one. We don't want to end up with dualism. And we also don't want to end up with good is evil and evil is good. But Mikey, how do you, so to me, if if I, if I, let's say for the sake of numerics, Mm -hmm. the yin and the yang is one plus one equals 10 because it has a power to multiply. But, but for what I understand from you is saying the yin and the yang is one minus one is zero. So could you play the two models? Yeah, you, you could play the two models. You could, you could play around with them in your head. But the point is that if you ha- either extreme is only part of the picture and either one doesn't do justice to what reality is. Okay. And Hashem doesn't want you to make either conclusion when you read the Torah. Hashem doesn't want you to open up the Torah, first letter is a sadi, and then you say to yourself, hey, look, either good is evil and evil is good. That's the one extreme where everything is kind of one and pantheism and, uh, you know, everything is perfect, even the evil. And then the other hand, God doesn't want you to make this crazy split between good and evil. I think the point is not to think about that, number one. Number two is that it's ineffable. The point I'm making is, it's not meant to be thought about. It's not meant to be put into words. It's meant to be experienced. And once you experience it, you'll understand the mystery of Sadi, of the Sadiq, of the two Yods facing outwards, of the Nun and the Yod, of the Zachar and the Nekeva, of this interplay of, of, of Yin and Yang. And the only way to ex- understand it is through an experience of it, rather than, rather than what? Rather than just thinking about it. Because thinking about it will never lead you towards mystical truth. Um, so it was not turns face to face. It must remain hidden. And what, did it, what does it mean? It looked upward and downward, trying to face its partner. right? So when it, the, the Yod was attempting to look and, and see its, its partner. But Hashem promised that, don't worry, Yod. You're going to arise elsewhere. The Yod and the Nun will, it will face one another. But not in the letter Sadi. In a different letter, in the letter Tet. You look at the letter Tet, you have a Nun and you have a Yod, and they're facing each other. And we'll see later on why that the Tet doesn't begin the Torah. Um, but I guess we'll pause here. But this has been so interesting. You know, who thought that you can find all this stuff from the question of why don't we start the, the Torah with the letter Sadi? And where did we get to? We got to understanding deep philosophical truths about number one, dualism, number two, you know, the, the dangers of dualism, number two, the dangers of everything being one and monism in a way is the word for it. And if you believe in monism, then you could give an excuse for evil. We don't want either one. And we and uh, the Torah's point is there's a very deep hidden truth here that you need to earn in a sense. And that once you work on your spiritual self through meditation, through whatever it may be, through you know personal development, you'll get to a point where you don't think about the deep truth of Sadi. Instead, you experience it. But it would have been way too premature to begin the Torah that way. Thank you very much, everybody. Baruch Amen Amen. If anybody has any questions, I'm all ears. That was great. Thanks, Mike. It was dynamite. I love you guys, really. And what a pleasure every week to, to learn with you. I'm sorry it's been a couple of weeks since we've seen each other, but... Well, Purim is Purim. Yeah, that's right. Purim is Purim. We, we want to have uh, more Purims, hopefully, in the future. Amen. <coughs> I'll see you, Mikey. Thank okay. you, Adi. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Bye. 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 Bye.